Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Stop Being the Best Kept Secret. I am your host, Dr. Tana M. Session, organizational development strategist, DEI thought leader, and HR transformation consultant. And I am pleased to be back for part two of the interview. Hopefully you listened to part one. If not, rewind. You've got to listen to part one of this interview because I'm here today with Ms. Joan Mahalan and her son, Loki Mahalan. And she is a civil rights icon. If you don't know her, Google her. You will be so impressed with what you learn about her just as I was, which is why I knew I had to have her on the podcast. Um, so Loki, I want to start with you. Okay. okay, so we spent some time in the first episode kind of going through the journey of your mom and civil rights, how she got involved in it at the tender age of 10, just having awareness to know that this is not right. And then as she became a teenager and started college and getting involved in the um, nonviolence protesting. So what did your mom share with you about the civil rights journey while you were growing up? Well, you know, she didn't really did, quite frankly, to share that much. Um, that was just what they did. Now we would hear some of the stories and things like that from her friends when they would all get together and and, uh, and chop it up and such. But at the end of the day, that was just kind of who they were. And we were, just they, old folks talking. Yeah. And, you know, it was like, you know, we were kids. We wanted to play with our friends. And so it was like we had to sit there politely and listen for like 10 minutes and then we could leave. So but I I, I think, you know, I think part of the problem Part of the, one of the things we run into a lot is, you know, when we talk about my mom's story and, and those of like John and Hank Thomas and others is, is we, uh, we, we focus on these big events and these things they got involved in, you know, that are captured in these, you know, monumental, you know, photos and such. Um, when really, as we talked about in the first episode was, you know, my mom's journey begins when she's 10 yeah. um, in that level of awareness. But what she does is she sees something is wrong and she says, I'm going to do something about it. You know, uh, she doesn't say this is wrong. Oh, well, what can I do? Or, or can you take care of it? Hopefully someone is. She says, you know what? I see the problem. I'm going to do something. And so that's, to me, that pivotal moment for all of us is, you know, everything after that is an after, you know, is the aftermath of, of that, of, you know, is the impact of that action. And so we all have to get to that point where we can say, you know what, this is wrong. I'm going to do something about it. And a question for both of you to consider is, what is your personal belief about um, civil rights in the state of the country now? We're moving backwards. Moving backwards. Mm -hmm. That's, that's yeah. scary for me to hear that from you, considering you were there. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm hopeful. Okay. We're definitely moving back and, and we should be, you know, very cognizant of what we're seeing in places like Florida of erasing that history of trying to rewrite the narrative. That's the same thing that was happening in the early, you know, just 100 years ago um, with the United Daughters of Confederacy rewriting the, the slave narrative, you know, and and you know the, the happy slave narrative. Right. Right. The lost calls and stuff that would you know, usher in in particular, uh, you know, the, the lynchings and the mob violence and so forth. Not that that wasn't happening before, but it really kicked into overdrive. Um, and this, this sense that they lost something, you know, and, uh, you know, that they, if, if they could make America great again, you know, what to be, to be what it used to be. Right. Um, and there's, we're seeing those echoes again. And so, uh, 
we need to be willing to, and we've seen that we're seeing people who are standing up and, and fighting against that. Um, but you know, let's not you know kid ourselves. Uh, all, all these things can happen just because it's America doesn't you know it look it's happened before. Yes, right. right. So let's not kid ourselves and think it's not going to happen again. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, the, some of the signs are there. They said we just need extra vigilant, you know, vigilant. But I also see that hope and that I see that amongst young people today. Um, who are um, you know, aware of what's happening and want to learn more and, and know more. Uh, my mother and I speak to a lot of young people and, and uh, we see that in them. Uh, it's that same passion and desire to, to make this world better for everyone that, that they had uh, back in the 50s and 60s. Well, the redrawing of political maps for... Um, members of Congress and state legislatures and all that, and they keep diluting the black vote the way they draw the boundaries. Yeah. It's almost like the redlining that they did in the housing industry, they're doing that in the voting districts. Right. You know, well, with the Mississippi Constitution, you know, that, that you know, basically, you know, outlawed, you know, black voters. Um, made it that much more difficult with poll taxes and so forth. And so we, we oh, see mm -hmm. yeah, those things today. We had poll tax in Virginia too. Right. That was before your time, boy, but you know. Yes, yes, of course not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. what do you have for the young people? So I have, I have a son, he's 28 years old, and he is disillusioned about the, the state of the nation and where we are. He feels like nothing's changed since the civil rights movements of the 60s and we're you know, no further along as black people in this country as they were back then. Now I argue the opposite and I give him examples of where I see that there has been progress and movement and he's definitely a product of that. But do mm -hmm. you hear that from the other young students and, and children, uh, young people that you talk to or uh, meet in this work? Um, you know, we, we, there, there is that level of dis you know, disenfranchisement um and, and and the like that that people have a sense of and there is that there but there's there's that searching for an answer of what can we do and so when they you know meet someone like my mom I'm going okay if they could do it and you got to understand what they were up against versus what people are up against today are two different things yes. um so much more entrenched but obviously but also uh, a lot more upfront right um now you have a lot of you know seemingly polite racists yeah. um, and there's things a little you know they, they've learned a few tricks mm. and they're, they're applying those but um but the game is still the same and yeah. so and, and so the the what worked then continues to work today at, at the end of the day when it's all said and done if you want to change something in this country you have to vote that's why they they work so hard to take it away. Yep. Redistricting and everything else and voter ID and the full nine yards. I, we had a student once who said to us, you know, well, why should I vote? My vote doesn't matter. And I said, well, it, better, it matters so much that they're doing everything they can to take it away. Consider Thank that. You. They know how important that one vote is. Um, so they're going to do everything to make you feel like it doesn't matter. And that's more so why you need to vote. That's the civil rights activists realize that. Yes. We can ride on buses and set the lunch counters and do these things. But if you can't change who's in power, nothing's truly going to change. And we're seeing that, right? 
Yeah. Um, you can see that in Florida, what's going on, uh, what the power structure is doing and in Texas and elsewhere. Um, but Even Virginia. Virginia, right. But, you had a black, first elected black governor in the history of the United States was Doug Wilder, who served in Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy, but we're still moving backwards. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. My mom, well, you're like doomsday today, mom. Good grief. Uh, <laughs> Say what? You're such a doomsday here today. Really apocalyptic. But, but yes, but at the same time, mother, uh, you know, you look at that and, and again, it comes back to the vote. Uh, and Luvon Brown, who's a freedom writer that's in the film, The Uncomfortable Truth, that we did. He said, look, let's not kid ourselves. We don't have slavery. We don't have Jim Crow. We don't have legal segregation. So, yeah, things have changed, but there's still that work to do. And again, you know, Joanne Bland, um, she's actually in, in a photo over my shoulder right here. 11 years old, she'd been arrested about 13 times when she was knocked unconscious on the Edmund Pettus Bridge um, during Bloody Sunday. Um, you know, she she's still at it. And she still talks about, you know, the, the importance of voting because it's it's that critical. And you know, as, as Vernon Damer said uh, on his deathbed after he had fought back against the Klan when had a shootout with him as they were firebombing his home, you know, he said, if you don't, if you don't vote, you don't count. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's what's so critical. Yeah. Same thing I share with my son as well. And, and that's where his disenfranchisement comes in mostly is with the voting because he feels like because of the electoral college, they could sway whichever they vote, way they want. It's not always the popular vote. And so we were having this great debate over Thanksgiving dinners. You can imagine <laughs> the best place to talk about politics. <laughs> it was like, okay, enough. I have a headache. I don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> But um, you're right, you know, they they have, and they have more information available to them now very easily versus, you know, when your mom and her generation was doing this work and, and they can, they can just like they did with the summer of 2020, they can, you know, through a text, through a TikTok video, through yeah. uh, a post on social media, they can rally forces around a movement and make a movement happen like we saw in the, in the summer of 2020. So I hope that they continue with that energy. And that's, that's what I'm trying yeah. to encourage in him as well. But you know, you know, it's but if you don't vote, your candidate won. Yeah. You've exactly. lost the right to complain about it because yeah. you said it's okay whoever wins. Mm -hmm. So if you don't like who's in office and you didn't vote, that's on you. Yeah. So I have another interesting question for both of you because I've had some friends who told me this has happened to them and they were either caught off guard, they were a little surprised, or they weren't really sure how to respond. So have you ever been in a situation where you are around others who identify as white and they've either said something, whether it was a joke or a remark or a comment that was discriminatory against another race, let's say a black person? And if so, how did you address that? What was your reaction? Well, I can't remember specifically, but my reaction would be, shut your mouth. <laughs> well... Mom, I mean, as a parent, you had a situation wherein um, a teacher uh, asked you why your son didn't have enough white friends. Yeah, parent-teacher conference. She was concerned that Django didn't have many white friends. And I went home and literally wrote out in cursive a list of everybody whose house he went to to play, everybody who came to our house to play with him, and anybody else he talked about as a good buddy, and he was within one percentage point of the school demographics 
The school was about a third black, a third Southeast Asian, and a third white. And I went back to that teacher and asked her, showed it to her, and I said, now, why isn't this true of all the students? Mm -hmm. <laughs> she didn't have a response, but... You have an answer? Uh, yeah. But, but at the same time, I mean, there, there's a, a, you know, purposeful action, right? There's real intent into what my mother did. Yeah. It wasn't just, you know, oh, that's stupid racist, you know, yeah. whatever. It was, okay, let me analyze this. Let me do, let me do the work that's required. Um, a, a, obviously, it's, it's hard to, probably the hardest to, to say things um, with friends. Um, you know, when, when you're in a group of people, you don't want to stand out sometimes, but, uh, you know, that's definitely, it's, you know, the shut your mouth approach. Um, it's, it's, you know, I've already found that offensive. That's not, a, that, you know, none of that's funny. You know, knock it off. You know, and sometimes you have to decide who's going to be your friend. Some people won't change. Yeah. We need to be, uh, if we really want things to change, we have to allow people to change. That's, that's important. Um, and so sometimes we kind of get in our heads that we're just going to, you know, blow people up, you know, on social media, whatever else. Let me know how, you know, when's that ever worked for anybody. Um, I had a situation it wasn't race related and, but it was, uh, I had a coworker who, um, made some homophobic statements about some some other co-workers and it just caught me off so off guard that I didn't even know what to say this was actually where we were turning back from a reward trip and uh and I was like what he says oh I mean and and it was as benign as using their phone and had like you know little earbuds and they're you know plugged in one ear and one the other and listening to some you know what probably watching a YouTube video or something and we we're waiting at the airport and he goes I mean I think it's disgusting but you know, good for them that they feel comfortable around us. Yeah. I said, what? what do you, I was like, I was like, what? He goes, you know, so I just kind of, I left it there. I had no words to respond. I wasn't prepared for that. Now, if he said something racist, I was prepared. Right. Right. Um, but then as it kept, you know, I, I kept rolling through my mind going, okay, I don't want to, I can't leave this alone. So I called him when we got back, uh, you know, that evening. And just said, hey, you know, I uh, there's something you said, right? And, and he says, what? So I explained to him. He goes, oh, hey, hey, you know what? But I, I have friends who are gay. It's like, okay. I was like, well, how do you think they would feel if they heard you say that? So I asked this question, a simple question, walking them through something. And he was like, you know, I never thought of that before. I said, now I want you to understand something. My silence wasn't acceptance. I just didn't have words. But I could have beaten myself up and walked away from it I and moved on. But instead I circled back around uh, in a calmer setting when I could collect my thoughts and and my argument, if you will, and laid it on the table for him. And then let him know, hey, look, uh, you know, you know, it appeared that he was, you know, quite, uh, you know, surprised by what he had said and so forth. And, you know, I, I have friends who are gay, that sort of stuff. I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to give you a pass. You know, I'm gonna, but I'm putting you on notice as well. So I said, "Hey, look, you know, um, I just I, I want you, I want you to make aware of this that if you if, if I hear that you've said this again or if you've said something like this, you know, this is definitely going to HR, right? Yeah. But I want to give them that opportunity to change first. Um, but so those are the sort of situations where you run into where you have to make that active choice. And some and one of the things I think is important that comes to mind when I talk about this is thinking back to the civil rights movement, and you brought this question up earlier with my mother was, did you ever have any of that nonviolence training? 
So they're actually trained for how to respond to situations when you got attacked. So because if you had your non, if you couldn't get your nonviolence on today, so if you didn't listen to episode one, go back and understand what that means. But if you couldn't get your nonviolence on, so you had to have this training on what to do. But we need to be prepared to train ourselves and have that knowledge base with us on how to respond when something happens. How do we intervene when we see something taking place? It doesn't have to be, you know, someone attacking someone physically, but how do we stand in those gaps? emotionally, mentally, and sometimes physically, and that we can practice that uh, within our minds, you know, or with with friends and stuff to know how to do that. That's something that seems to be missing oftentimes is how can we actively engage? Um, Because too often, once that time passes, we beat ourselves up and move on. Yeah. Very few times you get someone like my mother who goes home and goes, all right, well, I'm going to show you and does the math. Right. And then goes back and shows the teacher. So, mm-hmm. no, thanks for that. That's helpful. I think a lot of people have struggled with, you know, yeah. they see or hear something that they know is offensive, you know, even if it's not directed at them or it's not something that they are personally impacted by to be able to speak up in that moment and, and truly be, you know, a bystander ally, right? To be able to say, hey, that wasn't okay or I didn't find that funny or what made you say that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think I think it's because we're so used to not talking to people directly. Yeah. Social media makes it so easy to, you know, to attack someone who says something racist or to jump in and chime in with everyone else. Mm-hmm. It's when you actually have to do it in person. That, that That's a different game. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's just like the people who would send hate mail, you know, to the civil rights activists. It's real easy to write a letter. I mean, the fact yeah. that you're consciously, consciously actually doing that and putting a stamp on it and putting the mails, you know, next level anyways. Right. But a lot of those people are cowards. They yeah. don't do that when you're in face-to-face. Face-to-face is a little different, but, you know, that's that's where the real work takes place is that one-on-one. And conversely, yes, we can do, you know, be social activists online. Um, you know, some my friend of mine called that slacktivist. Uh, but there is a place for that to do some of that work online, right? You know, in social media. But at the end of the day, that one-on-one is where the real change takes place. True. Thank you for that. And I do want to talk a little bit about um, what are your thoughts around the overturning of Roe v. Wade and affirmative action um, by the Supreme Court as it relates to civil rights? I think it's a denial of civil rights by the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we need some new f- folks on the Supreme Court. Here, here. <laughs> it, it's, it's, once again, white men policing bodies. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. so uh, <laughs> it is a direct result of not voting. Yeah. Let's just be fair. I mean, who selected those people? If you don't like who got selected for the Supreme Court, you should have voted. Yep, exactly. We got to learn how to play the long game. Right. Because <laughs> these are for life judges. Like, they're not going anywhere unless they decide to retire or, unfortunately, they pass away. Otherwise, they're there for life. Yeah. Look, they're playing the long game, too. Yep. You know, they just waited. Okay, you got Obama for eight years. All right, we'll wait. We'll buy our time. We know it, We know you're not going to have Obama forever. It's- that's so they right. started. They started working on it. The, yeah. the the second the Supreme Court ruled, and I'm blanking on the uh, the case Shelby versus Holder, I think it was, um, about the Supreme Court about uh, voting rights. Mm-hmm. Second, the Supreme Court, you know, did that. All of these bills 
suddenly appeared for rolling back voting rights. Yeah. Well, guess what? They, they knew it was coming. Mm-hmm. So they were prepared. But we weren't. Yeah, exactly. And then what are your thoughts on um, the recent backlash around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging? So I, w- I want to end with that question. Go ahead, son. <laughs> it's a space I work in more than my mother, I guess. She, I mean, she, my my mother is the you know, the, the to me the epitome of, of of the work that we should be doing. The example of what white people in particular, you know, should be doing. So, uh, but the the rolling, you know, it's I, we shouldn't be surprised by it. Um, there's always, you know, 2020 was this massive uplift of of organizations, companies dumping money into causes and so forth and just, you know, oh yeah. But there was no foundation uh, for these organizations to start with. It was just the, um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? It's uh, reactionary. <laughs> it, it, it's reactionary, but uh, performative. Performative. A lot of performative work going on there. Uh, we did our part. We wrote our check, or whatever. Or we, as an organization, yeah, we 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 felt something, and we, uh, you know, as as a CEO or whomever, and, and decided to slap something on our website and and you know hire a bunch of trainers and stuff and and put people through the work. But once they found that employees were getting tired of it, if you will, you know, well, certain employees were getting tired of it, mm-hmm. um, that it was like, oh, this is costing us money, which they don't understand that. You know, employees either will cost you money or make you money. When when it happens, this is why you need DEI, because quite frankly, I mean, the racism still continues, the sexism and everything else, and we're seeing the net results of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, we we there's there's that ebb and flow that takes place. But what we're seeing as well, despite that, organizationally, companies are trying their best to kind of not you know they're going to have that position, but they're not going to give it any power. That you know, at the same time, I'm seeing the uh, ERGs, employee resource groups, and stuff um, that are taking some of that power upon themselves and making sure that the work continues to get done um, by having these employee-wide discussions and so forth. Um, it it is organizations kind of you know sloughing off the responsibilities from from the top. Yeah, but it's nice to see that the power that that the the employees are empowering themselves in that. At the end of the day, when it's all said and done, real change doesn't take place in organizations unless you got buy-in from the top. Um, and if the CEO or the top executives aren't on board and really believe in it, and we've seen where organizations have that, then it's not going to be sustained. But, but how many more companies that, that's now part of their supposed DNA? So, I mean, there is a move forward. So you got a lot more organizations that are now engaged and understand the need for DEI, you know, and so forth. But um, it's moving across, it's moving away from that performative element and getting them back into that that engagement. And sometimes it's just, you know, it, those words get attacked. Yeah. Okay, so maybe we just need to change what those words look like and make sure that everyone's involved and sees their place within it. Um, and how they can be change agents as well. Thank you for that. And I'm sorry, I do have one final question for both of you. Um, so Ms. Joan, I would love to hear from you. As a country, where do we go from here? Forward, I hope. Mm-hmm. We, we need like? just accepting people as people and working for peace in the world. 
Definitely. And Loki, I want to give you an opportunity to tell everyone about your book and a little bit more around the work that your foundation does before we wrap up. Yeah. So our foundation is the Joan Trump Power Mulholland Foundation. I, I named it after my mother. Uh, Without asking permission. <laughs> she's, she's the only mother that complains about her children honoring her, but okay. Uh, but yeah, so it, it you know this uh, you know it was it was founded on this idea that preserve, share, and continue my mother's legacy, and teach others about civil rights movement and how they can make a difference. And we say we exist to end racism, racism through education, through the films that we do, the curriculum, professional development, DEI, and so forth. And and one of those elements as well is is our newest book called Get Back to the Counter: um, Seven Lessons from a Civil Rights Icon, um, and it's. It's it's a book. We don't we don't frame the book anything like self help or leadership, um, or even activism that people have have taken it upon themselves to to frame it for what they need, which has been exciting to see. So it's 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 a great book that takes the principle these seven principles and um, and illustrates them through my mother's stories and how they uh, you know use these these uh, principles to to move work forward, uh, either in their personal lives or in general throughout, you know, during the civil rights movement. And and those elements of leadership and everything, you know, percolate through that. They're very universal concepts. Um, so it's another way of learning about the civil rights movement and how to make a difference and, and apply that in your lives as well. So right. And where can they find the book? Uh, it's on Amazon. And we also have on our website as well, the JTM Foundation. And that's where we have other content as well. And you've got a bunch of kids' books. We got kids' books and films. We've got, you know, my mom's mug shots on a T-shirt even. Which is, okay. <laughs> Did you get her uh, permission? Yeah. Of course no. not. <laughs> no. no. You know, and we have different ones. You know, say History Matters or, you know, uh, those sort of things. You know, my mom has a very special one that says, this is my government-issued ID. Okay. And she calls her TSA shirt. And mine says, my mom's an ex-con. Okay. Uh, but you know, we have other things like that, but just uh, it all supports the foundation, the work we do with scholarships and and yeah. assemblies and whatever else, just education in general is our focus. Great. Well, Ms. Joan, any final words before I let you get back to your day? I really appreciate you hanging out with me mm-hmm. on this, the podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And folks, get out there and change the world for the better. Yes. And what about you, Loki? Any final words? Amen and pass the gravy. well you got some big shoes to fill and i know that you're doing the best out here that you can to represent her well and i'm glad that she uh uh allows you to use her name on the foundation at this point (laughs) there's some acceptance there (laughs) and i will definitely have to get that t-shirt so i'm gonna look for the t-shirt on the website Right on. Right. Thank you so much for hanging out. This is Dr. Tana M. Session, host of Stop Being the Best Kept Secret. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed this conversation as much as I did with Miss Joan and Loki Mulholland. And so honored. It's such a privilege to have both of you here. Thank you for saying yes to my bizarre, out of this world request to interview both of you. I really appreciate it. And um, I, I look forward to us staying in touch. I'm going to continue to watch your journey and what you do and, and you know, whatever I can do to reciprocate the work that you do and share it, I'm happy to do so. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you. God bless. Keep on keeping on. Yes.